If you have a Bible with you, you can uh, turn it open to Mark chapter 5. We'll have the scripture uh, up on screen as well. And one thing we've noticed as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark is that Mark presents um, his uh, evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, the anointed King. He presents that in sets of four, his uh, little his uh, uh, examples that prove who Jesus is come in sets of four. And that's, the, I don't know, that's just a fun thing that we noticed. I'm not sure what else that means, but, you know, we noticed early on that um, that as Jesus was beginning to go public with his ministry, there were four sets of questions that came where they asked, why does Jesus do things the way he does? Why does he speak the way he does? And then Mark gives us four parables as examples of Jesus' teaching. And now in chapter 5, we've been looking at these four dramatic miracles that Jesus performs that are on a different level, a different scale than the miracles so far. Um, so in Mark chapter 5, the end of 4 and 5, you have Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it stops. Even the waves stop instantly. And then he goes over to the other side, and there's this man who apparently has somehow inside of his life, inside of his body, a whole legion of demons. That's, you know, between five and 6,000 demons that have sort of taken residence in his life, and Jesus frees that man from the demons. And so those are the first two, and today we're going to look at the next two of the dramatic miracles that happen in Mark chapter 5. So uh, we'll start in verse 21. This is Mark 5, 21 to 43. When Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came up, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He asked him urgently, My little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now, a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she kept saying, if only I touch his clothes, I will be healed. At once the bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus knew at once that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and you say, Who touched me? But he looked around to see who had done it. Then the woman with Fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house saying, 
your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? But Jesus, paying no attention to what was said, told the synagogue leader, do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue leader where he saw noisy confusion and people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, why are you distressed and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they began making fun of him. But he forced them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and went into the room where the child was. Then, <clears throat> gently taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. The little girl got up at once and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. They were completely astonished at this. He strictly ordered that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we're going to be quiet before you for a moment. Would you speak to us about your word, about these stories we've just heard? Lord, throughout uh, the last two millennia, your followers have taken stories like these and applied them in all sorts of strange ways. We have tried to make systems out of them for how healing should happen. We've, uh, we've felt the guilt for not having enough faith when we desperately need healing. We've, we've struggled with these stories. We've also been encouraged and strengthened by these stories. Lord, I think because of these stories, some have approached you in faith and experienced your restoration, your healing. And I pray, Lord, that based on what we've just heard and how you meet with us through the preaching of the word, that more of us would be willing to come and fall at your feet. and be restored. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, in these stories, just like the two stories last week, what we find here is Jesus crossing over limits that human beings just expect to hit in our lives. He defies these limits. He confronts them and destroys them. And so uh, that was the filter through which I've been looking at this passage and thinking about it this week. And it led me on a, a bit of a bunny trail. Uh, I, I found myself reading again the story of, um, of the four-minute mile. Now, some of you know this story, but uh, it, as early as the late 1800s, uh, 1886, the article I found, pinpointed 1886, was when uh, people decided that this was a goal. You know, th this was the, the climax of human physical achievement. 
was to run a mile in less than four minutes. And so starting in 1886, runners, Olympians, the, the fastest uh, people in the world, uh, the, the trainers, the coaches, you know, the, the sports doctors, all of them started working toward this goal. And decade after decade passed, and no one could, no one could run a four-minute mile. In fact, in the literature, you start seeing them begin to believe that this can't be done by human beings. And then they're saying, well, you need perfect conditions. There needs to be wind that's at the runner's back, and it needs to be a warm day, and the track needs to be, you know, a certain amount of bouncy. And, and of course, the runner's got to be in his, you know, at, at the very best, tip-top shape, whatever, and still the limit could not be crossed. Until, of course, May 6th, 1954. That's an easy day for me to remember because one year later to the day my father was born. On May 6th, 1954, in Oxford, England, on a wet, cold morning, Roger Bannister took the track and just barely crossed the four-minute line. 3.59 he ran. Within months, another runner did it, 358. By the end of the cal that calendar year, three runners crossed four minutes in a single race. Since May 6, 1954, over 1,500 runners have passed the four-minute line. A, a limit that we thought was impossible to cross when somebody did it, it changed the horizons of possibility. And so stories like that, they inspire us, right? I mean, we hear that and we think, what, what limit can I break? You know, what, what, what achievement can I cross? What can I do that, you know, that I thought was impossible before? And, and if you're expecting a sermon like that, you might be disappointed. Stories like that do inspire us to push our limits, yet maturity requires that we accept our limits, doesn't it? When I accept my limits, I'm able to rest, actually rest. I'm able to delegate. I'm able to entrust responsibilities to others. I'm able to collaborate. I'm able to be honest with myself and with God and with others. Well, if you're expecting a sermon that tells you to just accept all of your limits, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> Life itself is a wrestling match with limits. Whether we're talking about physical achievement, intellectual capacity, whether we're talking about societal limits, legal limits, financial limits, the reality is that limits define us, right? We know certain people as being brilliant, certain people as being attractive, certain people uh, being uh, incredibly strong, certain people as being wealthy, and others not so much on those things. Your unique blend of limits might be a source of pride for you, and it's also probably a source of frustration and shame for you. You have a unique blend of limits. Every parent has to watch their kids grapple 
with the limits of life. When one of my kids will ask how many chores they need to do to buy this $80 toy, and I'm like, well, your chores get you a quarter each time, so like, they're running up against limits, right? At any given point, your freedom has bounds. It's limited at, at every point. Right now, let me, tell you, let me tell you good news. You are completely free right now to do everything that you're capable of doing. Did you see the circle I made there? Most of the people in this room uh, could, you know, crumple up a bulletin and, and throw it at me, and, and it would at least probably come in my direction, right? Anyone who's watching online, the internet might be down today, but if, if anyone was, is watching online, um, you're not able to throw anything at my face. It would just hit your screen, right? You, you are free to do anything that you're capable of doing. You could hold a paper cup to your lips, but you probably can't walk outside and lift any of the cars in the parking lot off the ground. Your limits define you. And today's passage brings us face to face with the battle with limits. We have this, this uh, sort of locally famous guy, Jairus, who falls at Jesus' feet because he sees an inevitable, impenetrable limit bearing down on him in the worst way. His beloved 12-year-old daughter is dying, and he's in a race against time. As far as he's concerned, when death arrives, it's over. The woman who sneaks a touch of Jesus' garments has spent every dime that she had on medical help. She's destitute. The very concept of medicine depends on the human resistance to the limits of illness and injury, right? That's why we keep going. That's why there was this great race to develop a vaccine. We don't want to be limited by these things. We can intervene. But in this story, not only have the doctors not cured her, the interventions have made her worse. Anyone who has wrestled with a chronic or rare or undiagnosable illness knows how devastating that would be. You've lived through that. This woman has reached the limit of medicine. But her, her situation introduced more limits. Not only had it rendered her destitute, she was now ceremonially unclean in a permanent way. Mark carefully notes that for 12 years, she has been unable to interact with the Jewish community in any meaningful sense. <clears throat> She's been unable to offer sacrifices, unable to enter the synagogue, unable to eat in community. She's poor and she's unclean. Her pain has also become her shame. Jairus and this woman are both left with just one option. What if this young teacher, this young man, the healer, the guy who healed the paralytic, the guy who, who cast out a demon in the synagogue, who healed the man with the withered hand, what if this teacher, who's, who's practically healed everybody in town, and according to Mark chapter 2, what if he could help? 
Well, they remain limited people. In fact, this story is just going to show us how limited they are. They discover in this story a limitless Savior. Jesus destroys the limits that they know in three ways. The limits of power, the limits of restoration, and the limits of purity. Power, restoration, and purity. Here's what I mean. His power is shown to be limitless in this. This is maybe the obvious point in this sermon. In the last passage, while they're out at sea, and, and you know what we looked at last week, the storm is rising and the fishermen on the boat you know, are o- overwhelmed with fear. Jesus is sleeping and they say, don't you care? We're going to die. And he asks them, why are you guys so distressed? When he gets to Jairus' house, and this sweet little girl has died, and everyone is mourning, he asks, why are you guys so sad? Uh, duh. We're going to die. The little girl died. Why are you asking why? That doesn't make any sense. His question has a touch of dramatic flair, I guess. For any of them, the storm or the death is the obvious thing. Why why are we distressed? Why are you not distressed? (laughs) But for Jesus, his presence is the obvious thing. Did you not forget that I'm here? Did you not realize that I have come? His power is shown to be limitless. But his restoration has also shown to be limitless in this story. The restoration that Jesus offers from from the outside, it, it might appear that Jesus is establishing himself as a religious leader, right? He's, he's teaching in synagogues. He's talking about the scriptures. He's talking about God. He's casting out demons. And here's what a religious leader, a religious movement does. They create a code. They create a a number of steps. This is how you should live. This is what you should do. And if you follow these steps, you will be one of the holy ones. You'll be in. God will approve of you. The gods will like you. You'll be holy. You'll come to peace. Whatever. That's the simple rule of religion. That simple rule played out over time, played out over a lifetime, played out over generations. It creates insiders and outsiders. People who, in their family line, they just can't figure it out. And they're just not welcome. And others who have done pretty good at playing the game, and they're in. Likewise, those who show great bravery and faith, regardless of where they're coming from, they're rewarded. Whereas those who struggle to show faith can be ostracized by the community or just stay quiet. So let's think about that in terms of this passage. We have these two people who come to Jesus. The first one who comes is named Jairus. And the fact that we know that is a big deal. Mark rarely tells us people's names. He tells us the disciples' names because, you know, 
Those are the guys carrying on the Christian movement. But he rarely tells us other people's names. The, the guy with the legion of demons is just the guy with the legion of demons. The woman with the, with the hemorrhaging is just the woman who's bleeding. But Jairus, knowing his name changes the story. Th think of it like this. If Stephen were to tell you a story about how this week he came across a, a, someone on the side of Littleton Boulevard who was changing a flat tire, and Stephen hopped out to help them change the tire. How nice of you. Thanks for doing that in this hypothetical story. And um, so, yeah, so Stephen tells us this story, and it's, this, it's a nice story. If it's my next-door neighbor, Bob, then Stephen just did it for a guy in Littleton. It doesn't matter whether he tells us the, Bob's name or not. If it's Jerry Valdez, the mayor of Littleton, the story takes on a different meaning for us, right? If you follow Littleton politics, and I know you all do, um, you, right, yeah, you know who Jerry Valdez is. And so, whoa, that's wild. Stephen ch helped Jerry change a tire. Maybe Jerry will help, you know, us get a building <laughs> or whatever, <clears throat> whatever. It's Jerris. Jairus, the synagogue leader. Jairus, the religious leader in the community. That's one end of the spectrum. That's the guy on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a nameless woman who is so embarrassed that she's trying to get healed in secret. Not only does, not only does Mark not tell us her name, she doesn't want Jesus to know her name. How different. The bounds. Who can be restored? Second, consider their faith. On the one hand, we have Jairus. He, he seems full of faith when he first comes to Jesus. Lord, please heal my daughter. But as soon as he finds out that his daughter has died, Jesus has to look him square in the face and say, don't be afraid. Just believe. It's like he's grabbed him by the, you know, collar. Listen to me. You're going to be okay. His faith has dropped through the, through the floor. On the other hand, you have this woman who so believes in the healing power of Jesus that she thinks, you know, she's kind of got this magical conception of how Jesus' healing works. You know, just a touch of his clothes and I'll be healed. Christians have done some weird things with that over the years, Right? So we have this man whose faith is so flimsy and this woman whose faith is overwhelmingly big, you know, beyond theological boundaries even. Who can be restored? The one with weak faith or the one with great faith? Who are you? Some of you are more like Jairus. You, you have reputation and weak faith. Others of you are more like this woman. This story is speaking to all of you. You are not beyond the bounds of Jesus' restoration. You're not. Whatever your doubts are, whatever your status is. Third, Jesus' purity is limitless in this story. Um, we 
in my house, we, we love playing the classic card game Canasta. I know we've got a couple other Canasta players around. Anyone else know about Canasta? Could, you know, Canasta is this game that takes on sort of family traditions, and so every household has their own version of Canasta. But here's what happens in Canasta. You have to uh, build these books in order to you know, go out in your round, and you have uh, what's called clean books and dirty books. A uh, clean book is just the card that you're trying to collect with nothing else. A dirty book has wild cards in it. Ooh. So here's the deal in Canasta. Here's the rule in Canasta. You, you can always make a clean book dirty. You can always add a wild card to a clean book, you know, to complete the book. But you can't make a dirty book clean. You can't pull cards out. And uh, it occurred to me that whenever I'm teaching people how to play canasta, I say, you know, just like life, right? That, <laughs> you can always make something innocent not. But once our innocence is gone, isn't that how we live? Isn't that how we think? The, the damage is done at that point. Not that we believe that's always permanent in life. It just takes a lot of time to work things out of the system. We quarantine until the virus is gone. We clean what's dirty. We do the work to take it out. But our logic is you can't make something pure just by adding more pure stuff to it. That only just dilutes the, the dirt, right? Actually, we have a story about this in, in biblical history. Um, it's a very troubling story, and we teach it to kids like it's a nice story because it has animals in it. We're talking about Noah's Ark. So, you know, at, at the beginning of Genesis, uh, apparently the human race had become so corrupt and so wicked that God says, we got to start over, reboot, you know, control, alt, delete. So, so the flood comes, and the only people that are preserved are Noah and his family. That's it. Noah and his sons and their wives. So, has the world been purified? No. The impurity has simply been diluted dramatically. The very next scene, as soon as there's dry land, again, you see Noah get out, he makes a tent, and he gets drunk and passes out in his tent. Then questionable things start happening in the tent. The the impurity is not gone, it's just diluted. That's sort of a principle that beca it became a law for the people of Israel. If someone was unclean, whether from, you know, whether, you know, by being dead or by eating the wrong kind of food or whatever, you know, or, or the monthly menstruation, menstruation cycle. Oh boy, I was so nervous about that word. I stumbled on it. The monthly cycle, we'll just say. You know, if you touch somebody who's unclean, you become unclean. Uncleanness is contagious. Cleanness is not. Right? That's, that's the basic logic that you find for a lot of Scripture. The only way to be clean again was one, to wait out the situation and then to offer sacrifices. Something had to be killed in order to make you clean again. And here comes Jesus. Jesus is fresh back from a trip across the lake where he was in a tomb next to a herd of pigs talking to a Gentile with five, 6,000 demons in him. How do you think his purity levels are? You know, 
Well, what, what does the therm thermometer read when he comes in the door? But he continues on with his ministry unfazed. Why did the woman try to touch him in secret? Because if it became known that she had touched him, he would have to go through a purity process because she was unclean and everyone she touched became unclean. Why did the friends of Jairus come and say, don't bother the teacher any longer? She's dead. Well, because now if Jesus goes in the room with the little girl, he's in the presence of a dead body and he becomes unclean. Purity is a huge deal in this story. And that limit is seen as you can't cross it. You can't cross that limit. But the limits of Canasta and Noah's flood simply don't apply to Jesus. In this great chapter uh, in a, one of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, he's writing about the resurrection. It's a weird chapter about the resurrection of the body and how Jesus' resurrection gives us hope and all this stuff. And, and he, he, he's practically singing in the letter. He sings, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up? This defies logic. Death is the thing that swallows up. That's what all of the um, impurity is. You know, we're holding death back by holding the impurity back. Death is the constant factor in all of history. You're a sinner, you're a saint, it doesn't matter. You're going to die. And yet, in this story, death is swallowed up in victory. When the woman touches Jesus, he doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. When Jesus grabs the little girl's hand, he doesn't become defiled by her dead body. Her dead body wakes up. Think of it this way, if you're trying to understand how this works, uh, maybe you're someone who has a lot of vivid dreams. Maybe you're someone who uh, bears the burden of having nightmares. You have terrible nightmares. You go to sleep at night and you see terrible things of the people that you love dying in terrible ways. And it, it, that's awful. That's an awful experience. As a parent, you know, I, yeah, I've had those dreams about my kids. And while you're living through it at night, it's, it's overwhelming. But the morning comes. You wake up and you realize there's a bigger, this little dream was this false little temporary reality. And I can go into my kids' rooms and there they are sleeping like little angel babies while they're asleep. <laughs> right? Right? Death is swallowed up in victory. The night is past. The new day has come. So where are you at on the purity scale? What shame do you carry? What, what secret do you bear, church? Because you've lived in a world that is pre and post Noah. 
It was there then, and it continues to grow. What are you terrified that someone might find out? What are you so careful to guard in your story? Addicts in the room, you know this. You know the fear of someone finding out about the thing that you're hiding? Porn addicts know the fear of someone discovering their online search history. Alcoholics know the fear of somebody finding your stash where you hide the bottles. What if your thought life was projected onto the screens here for the church to see? How about that burst of anger against the child where you used your strength against them in anger, not to restore them, but to make yourself feel better? What about the, the pills that you keep in your purse? Or that new credit card you just opened Oh, some of us, our shame is more sneaky. Uh, maybe you're crushed by your constant need for approval, even if you're pretty good at getting it. You know deep down that it's not God you fear, but people. I could go on. I could talk about procrastinators or perfectionists or overeaters, those who are fueled by resentment in your life. I could go on and on and on. So, that's you, hear the voice of Jesus echoing through the cracks. Who touched me? Who touched me? Not because I want to call you out, but because I want to know you. Here's how one commentator said it. Jesus insists on knowing who touched him. This woman wants a cure, a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with someone. He is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. And when we do, church, we've left the bounds of religion, of doing it right in order to achieve something, in order to get closer with Jesus. This woman didn't do it right. She was treating Jesus like a spiritual battery, and her battery was dead, and she just needed to attach her cables to his, right? Jesus is not a spiritual battery to jumpstart our healing or get our life back on track. Jesus is after you. She touched him, and after that, he calls her daughter. Go reread this passage and look for the word daughter. My daughter is dying. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. Jesus looks Jairus, who has just lost his daughter, in the eye, and maybe you need to hear his words. Don't fear, just believe. So how can death be swallowed up? How can the impure be made pure? The law required a sacrifice. The only way death could be swallowed up in victory was ironically through death. 
And that's the story we tell. We tell how Jesus entered into death just as he wanted to talk to this woman. He wasn't afraid that he would be called unclean. Just as he entered into the little girl's room, he wasn't afraid of the death in the room. That's what he did going to the cross. He entered into death and swallowed it up from the inside with a touch and a word, with the drip of his blood. He takes all the powers of hell, all the social shame, all the impurity of the human race into himself. Death is swallowed up. This is not a story about you learning how to be a better person with your limits. This is about a limitless Jesus who's after you. And that's what draws us to the table. So follow along with me as we celebrate this meal. Is the Father with us? Is Christ among us? Is the Spirit here? This is our God. We are his people. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. On the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave you thanks. And he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.